Praise God. If you could give out the notes there, please. And if, Ray, if I could have my first slide. Would you stand with me this morning as we prepare for God to speak to us? It's a, it's a critical day, folks. I, I, I can't stress it enough. I don't need to tell you. You've seen the news. You know what's happening. And I just pray that you would still your spirit one moment. Put your life on pause, as it were. And invite God to speak to you. Tell him that you're willing to be guided. You're willing to be taught. You're willing to be led. You're willing to lay down your life again. Today. That you realize the seriousness of the hour. That you've been chosen to live at this time. And you will not forsake him. Or neglect the hour. Or get distracted. So God, we're one small dot in this city. One small dot in this planet. But you can see us. And the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the whole earth this morning. To find those who earnestly seek him. And to deposit within them. We pray you would see us. And you would deposit in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Please be seated. So, a few weeks back I shared with you an example about my upbringing. I was born and bred in a war zone. And there was a hotel in my street called the Imperial Hotel. And the terrorists, for many, many years, they gave false alarms. They gave hoaxes. They would phone up and say, there's a bomb in the building, and there was no bomb. Then they would phone up, there's a bomb in the building, there was no bomb. And then the night came, which I will never forget, there was a bomb. And three people were killed, including my next-door neighbor. Folks, listen to me. Look forward, eyes forward. You have been hearing about end times probably since you were born. It's been reasonably trendy in our time. Don't become complacent. Okay? Don't become complacent. Don't let the repetition make you dull because it's a trap. In fact, it's a tactic. I believe it's a tactic to wear us out in some ways and to to, to dull our hearing rather than sharpen our hearing. I've taught in times for many years in many different cultures, many different countries. You get everything from people responding with fear and giving their lives to Christ, to laughter and mockery, you get the whole gamut of responses. Did you see Nigel Farage this week? Did you see him in the EU? Yeah? You see what he said? I thought it was quite funny. He said, 17 years ago, I came here and I told you I was going to start a movement and you all laughed at me. And then he said, nobody's laughing now. And as soon as he said that, I tell you, it just hit my Spirit, you know, because I felt, you know what? For 20 odd years I've taught end times. And I've had every reaction that you can imagine. But suddenly nobody's laughing anymore. Isn't it? Correct? Suddenly nobody's laughing anymore. Suddenly it's not funny anymore. Isn't it? Oh yes. Distracted by life, you would be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't. Even when you tell people the day in which they live, their brain calculates what, how much more they can get out of life 
before he comes back. Instead of thinking of souls, instead of thinking of church planting or mission, when I teach on end times, the human flesh, the, the mind, turns to self, even with that message. Correct? Oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. Even when those who believe the message, even those who are born again and believe that it's the end times, are still led astray, still going wrong. People like you, people like me. True or false? True, it's all through Scripture. I don't have to say it myself. You can see it in Scripture. I watched a news presenter this week on TV. He was... He had this guest on, it was quite funny, he had this guest on and he turned to the guest and he had all his bits of paper in front of him and he turned to the guest and he said, <clears throat> now, what do you think about, um, uh, and they both laughed because he didn't know what to start with. There was so many things, so many changes so fast. What's that one drop of rain? Remember? One drop of rain. It's no big deal. It's no big issue. How does the story end? So fast. Jesus. May God waken us up. I've been asked and I want to share with you a little bit, just a tiny little glimpse of how I see today my interpretation, which can be right or wrong, okay? I just submit it to you of the days in which we live, of particularly the last couple of weeks. Um in world history, but I would like to view it, to interpret it from a fully historical stance. I studied church history at Cardiff Uni for two years. I took it very seriously because I wanted to see the big picture. That is one decision I do not regret because it really broadened my mind. It broadened my perspective, not just on church history, but on the human, like people, human beings, and, and how we behave over time. God, help us. Man, men don't change. The human race doesn't change. The same mistake that was made in the Garden of Eden is made a couple of years later, is made another generation, is made, and will be made as he's coming back. It's the same mistakes, the same issues, same people, same human race. And if we're not careful, we run the risk of falling into the very same you know, pattern and, and pitfalls of our ancestors and our predecessors, which is why he gave us the book. He gave us the book so we would see what they did. We would see how things went wrong. But if you look at the big picture, very simply, most people get saved. Step one, they're happy with God. Remember the day you were born again? Amen? (laughs) Are we born again this morning? Remember the day you were born again. Remember the joy. And when God comes in, it's an unforgettable experience. It's a fantastic experience. And I think I could speak for everyone. When I'm saved, when I know that I was going to hell and now I'm going to heaven, I'm happy with God. But I tell you, it doesn't take too long in that relationship with God and with people before you say, uh, you know, you're all I need. (laughs) You're all I ever wanted. But I wouldn't mind a pay increase, Lord. I wouldn't mind this and I wouldn't mind that. And suddenly things begin to get added. And suddenly the Christ who was enough, 
the God who was my all in all, the God who fulfilled me, suddenly something shifts and actually he's not enough. Alone anymore. Step one, happy with God, leads to step two where actually, God, there's just one thing, just one more thing I need in order to be happy, if you don't mind. And one thing leads to another until the world is not enough. And that's the pattern of history. And men end up, nations, human beings, individuals, when they take control of their own lives, we end up wanting to be like God or to function as God. This is the story of history. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, remember. Adam and Eve are perfectly happy with God, right? And then they were convinced that there was one more thing. And Satan comes along and he convinces them, Oh, Eve, oh, your life is really good, but isn't it a shame that you just can't eat the fruit off that tree? Wouldn't it be great if only you had that one other thing? And Eve takes that final step of becoming her own God, taking control of her own life. Garden of Eden. Then it goes on to Babel, where men try to take back control again. Then it came with Herod. And ultimately, the same danger is alive and kicking today. Today, today, right? This Sunday. Within us, within our nations, and within the world. It's the same rebellion that I run the risk of falling into the same trap. Could I have my next slide, please, Ray? Um, I, want to, I want to recap just a little bit. We, we, we did a little intro on camp, and I mean a little intro on camp. That's why we've done two end times days for the language groups, and we have about another five, I think, coming up in the different regions. I want to take time and go through some things you will have heard or maybe be a bit confused about. That's perfectly okay. We'll take time and begin to understand some of the prophecies in Scripture because these prophecies, in my opinion, most definitely refer to today. There was a prophet called Daniel and a king in his day called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he was very disturbed by the dream and he was determined to find out what the dream meant. And Daniel was called, ultimately, to go and give an interpretation of the dream. Do you know what the dream was about? <laughs> Partly? Do you know what it's about? Today. It's about today. And you know the story. In the dream, the king saw five successive empires that were going to come upon the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. In the day that the prophecy was given, or the dream was was interpreted by Daniel. It was the first empire, the Babylonian Empire. Now, listen carefully and stay with me till the end of this because it's critical that you get this. Daniel said to the king, what you saw, you saw this statue, you saw this vision in your dream. King, you are the golden head, the Babylonian Empire. Okay? But the Babylonian Empire were eventually destroyed by the Medo-Persians. Where? In Babylon. In Babylon, the second empire, the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were eventually destroyed by the Greeks. Where? In Babylon. Okay? The Greeks were eventually destroyed by the Romans. Where? In Babylon. Okay? The book of Revelation talks about mystery Babylon and Babylon. Now, this period here, 
the, the Roman Empire period, this is where everything begins to change because Scripture prophesies to us that an empire will come into existence in and around after this iron one that will remain until Christ comes back. It's going to be on the earth when the Lord comes back. And it's described, as you'll see in a moment, as an empire of iron and clay. Now, if you've ever worked in a foundry, I did a few weeks in a foundry, you get iron, molten iron, and clay. And you pour the molten iron into a mold. And one thing you learn, iron and clay don't mix. Iron and clay break apart. And the final kingdom, which I believe is the European Union, is described as a kingdom of iron and clay that even though they come together, they cannot stay together. And Daniel prophesies or interprets the king's dream as this, that the final kingdom that is on the earth when Christ comes back is a kingdom that forms itself together but falls apart. It's very brittle. It can't hold itself together. It's like iron and clay, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what you're seeing. This kingdom, this last day's kingdom, will be the last king, the last empire on the earth, and Christ himself will destroy it. Hallelujah. Oh, yes, he will. Christ himself will destroy this kingdom. And so you have a repeated pattern in history of men getting dissatisfied with God, nations getting dissatisfied with God, taking control of their own destiny, whether it's as an individual or a nation, forming their little empires, and you have God himself having to intervene. Now, he intervened in Genesis, and it caused what? The fall of mankind. He intervened when they built Babylon, the, the Tower of Babel, and that was the flood. He intervened with Jesus Christ, and Jesus died on a cross and took All of these are interventions. Are you listening? We're about to have the last one. It's all written. It's even timetabled. We're about to receive the last intervention that Scripture talks about. Now, it couldn't be more clear. Shall we write it in the sky? He already has. He already has. Already has. Scary, isn't it? It's scary. The deafness, the deafness of people is scary. Look at it if you want. Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 verse 27. Daniel chapter 2 verse 27. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain the king, the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dreams and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying on your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before him stood a large statue, an enormous, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly 
and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces, and they became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly baked of clay and partly baked of iron. So this kingdom will be divided. Yet it will have some strength of iron in it. Even as you saw that the iron was mixed with the clay. You understand? So there will be an end times kingdom. A kingdom that will be on the earth. At the time that Christ comes, if I could have my statue back up there, please. That will be on the earth as Christ comes back. And Jesus himself will intervene to, to destroy, at least politically, this kingdom. Now, when you put that biblical prophecy together with history, both church history and world history, you get a very synchronized order, very, very, very accurate order of events leaving a kingdom that is going to be established on the earth in our day that will form a union, blah, blah, blah. Next slide, please, Ray. On, on camp, we looked a little bit at this. If you remember, we talked about the construction, the formation of the European Union over the last few decades and how it's still, every, every time I look at this, I still can't believe it. I still can't believe they built that. I mean, what on earth are men like? So in Strasbourg, their headquarters of the European Union was fashioned after Babel. Now, Father, I pray that we will hear this prophetically and not academically. Lord, will you put this word in our spirits this morning? See this tower of Babel. God intervened and he flooded the earth. He was very sad that he did it. But man at that point knew this is a powerful God. He's more powerful than us. We can't handle him. So do you know what they did? They built a tower. So it was high and they could escape the judgment. They could climb up and get away from the water. He judged the people, they're all dead. He's not going to get us. We're going to build a tower so high that we can escape the coming judgment. Are you with me? Now, did it work? No, because they never got to finish it because God hated it and he knocked it down. He destroyed it. Okay? It wasn't finished. And that's what this is. I, I repeat, I can't believe it. So when they... When they were constructing the European Union here in what I believe is Mystery Babylon, you see, the reason it's important that all those empires were destroyed in Babylon is because that's where the seat of Satan was and that's where the gates of hell were. And as you see those two things move to Europe, you then become Mystery Babylon. 
You with me? That's when the transition. Just watch those key items and you can follow what's actually happened. And that's where we live. So this is designed by an architect who designed a building to look as if it wasn't finished. So these, these struts are to represent scaffolding. So it was permanently built to represent something that would begin to be formed but could never be finished. How prophetic is that? <laughs> what, why is it not going to be finished? Because the Lord himself will destroy it. That's what's going to happen. The Lord himself will intervene as he has done multiple times through history, again and again and again. And I tell you this, not without warning. That's why I give you the example of my childhood. It's not without warning. There were endless warnings, countless warnings about the bombs. (laughs) And I, I, I tell you, people become complacent. That's what happens. They stop focusing. They don't take it seriously anymore. And then the judgment creeps up on them. The bomb happens. This is happening before our very eyes, as I said in the all-night prayer meeting. Till the day they entered the ark, they mocked Noah. Till the day the rain started, they were still saying it's not going to happen. And I tell you this, friends, till the day that the church is raptured, they will, people will still turn to you and say, don't listen to him. Yeah, don't, don't believe that. This is all nonsense. Till the very last day. They will still find reasons to try and not let this be true. Please don't let it be true. And therefore you have to look at the motives of men's hearts. You've got to, why would you say that? Why would you behave like that? I mean, do you want his kingdom to come or not? The reality is many, you know, do not want that kingdom. Or it's an issue of fear in the wrong sense. The other big image that we have, next slide please, Ray. The other big image that we have is the woman on the beast. This is a Greek coin. And this is historical, but it's also biblical. It was a Greek myth. Uh, next slide, please, Ray. This is the, this is the one I showed you. Um, it's the woman riding on the beast, which is outside the headquarters of the European Union. Re- in Revelation chapter 17, please. If you turn there. You don't need to put the scripture up. If you, if you just leave the image up. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Revelation 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me. Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, here we are. Babylon the Great arrived in Europe. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and the abomination on the earth. So, what's, why is this in the Bible? And why does John, in his vision, make reference to a Greek myth? This, it, this represents a Greek myth that preceded Christ, okay? 
But they knew it in their day. That's why it's referred to here. And the myth goes like this. There was a fantastic, dazzling bull that had wonderful horns in the shape of a crescent moon. Okay? Who has a crescent moon? (laughs) In the shape of a crescent moon. See it? A wonderful bull. And this bull spied a beautiful woman called Europa. And she was on a beach, actually a beach that was in Israel in those days. She was on a beach and the bull came to her and seduced her and got her to get on his back. And he took her and he plunged her into the sea and he raped her. It's called the rape of Europe. That's what this structure is. Okay? The woman riding on the beast. Now, the question is, Europe is named after her. Europa. Okay, that's where the name of this continent came from. So, who is Europa? Europe. Who is the beast? Well, for me, the beast is the devil. The beast is Baal. The beast is the moon god. And if you want to look figuratively or even practically, what this says to me is that the moon god, by the way, is the same god of Islam. That's what it is. It's the same false god. So, Baal is the devil. The devil has changed his name and his incarnation all the time. He keeps on changing it, but it's the same thing. It's Zeus, it's Baal, and it's Allah. That's what it is. They're not worshipping God. Look, everybody look. You listening? Europe, this continent, Europe will be raped by Islam. That's the prophecy. That's ultimately the prophecy. That there will be an overthrow, an attempted overthrow. And into this scenario comes the rock. Right? Just like he saves Israel at the last moment, so he will intervene in this continent. Are you following me? So the prophecy is not unclear. The scriptures are not unclear. But I tell you, men, Christians, work very hard. To try and confuse it or make it unclear. Just say it like it is. I could give you a lot of insight into that and information on that, but we'll do that in the regions. We'll do that one by one because of your cultural diversity and your backgrounds and theology. So it's better that we take you piece by piece. So to say that this is not a significant day is just insanity. This is, uh, remember what I shared about the, the leading 11 eschatologists in the world? All 11, remember, all 11 men stake their lives' reputation on the fact that this is what we have taught all our lives. This is the moment we've been waiting for. So if that doesn't get us serious, I don't know. I don't know what will. Amen? So it is a, it's an unbelievable day. You just cannot keep pace with it. Let me say this, though. I was aware this week that when people see all these things happening within Europe, the overthrow. This is an ancient, this is an ancient battle, right? Ishmael, right? This is an ancient, this is not, it's not new. There's been a war against Israel, which is what she represented in the beginning, the church on earth, the bride of Christ. There's been a war between these two brothers, between these two kingdoms for all generations since Jacob, right? So this is an old battle. This is not a new battle. It's just taken on a different form. If you can't win militarily, let's use politics. Let's choose money. And that's what they've done. They've tried to form a union. But even in this century, the manifestations of this battle in the First World War, Second World War, and ultimately Christ is going to bring it all to a swift 
conclusion. My point, as people see the economic turmoil of the last week, they'll, I was just aware this week that many people would think, oh, this is really terrible times. I thought, no, 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 no. It's just one drop. That's everything the last week, just a tiny little drop in comparison to what the book prophesies. What we've just experienced is next to nothing. Okay? And the reason I say that is because of the numbers. You can calculate the population of the earth, and then if you add up the, 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 the numbers that are killed, as prophesied in the book of Revelation, it says that one, earth, one third of the earth's population died through pestilence and war and famine, and then another third died. You calculate seven billion people, take away one third, that's a lot of people. Take away another lot of people. So if you think this tiny little drop is a scary moment, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Okay? That is, that is absolutely minuscule in comparison to what's about to happen. Right? Are you with me? So it's tiny. But what this affects is money, and that's why people scream about money. It's true. Scream about money, but if there's wars and nuclear bombs, you'll hear nothing. Because it's another country far away that doesn't affect us. But you start touching the money and that's another story. Uh, People start to scream and make a lot of noise. But it is a portend. It is a warning. And I would see this last week. My repeated counsel to you is the speed of change is almighty. The the speed at which these things are going to happen will don't ever think you can control it because you can't. It will be beyond your grasp. Before you look around, it will be gone. So fast is this prophecy. So fast it comes on the earth. While men are saying, peace, peace, boom, gone. Like a thief in the night. Gone. So be triple, quadruple, extra careful on this score. Okay? Now, having said all that, and understanding to some degree, through a dark glassly, the the prophetic nature of Scripture and the political happenings today, I sat quiet this week and just thought, well, what do I say to you today? Because today to me is a pretty important day. You know, we're all here. And I don't know what next week will bring. So today's a pretty important day. And I just came to this conclusion for you. Don't make the same mistake that Eve made. It's the same mistake. It's the same God, same devil, same mistake. Eve was at one point in her life content with God. But the devil managed to make her discontent. God had blessed Babylon. But that's not enough. They want the world as well. The world was not enough. And I want to begin this morning by asking you a critical question that has caused the fall of many before you. Are you discontent? Are you content with Christ? And is Christ enough? Is Jesus enough? Or have... I, have you, made the same mistake of all these previous generations which ultimately, you know, brought the hand of God to bear with devastating consequences historically, but none like what's just about to happen. God will once again act because he's a holy God. He will act. He he has to just because of his attributes. And I need to be very careful today that I can sit here this morning and say, do you know what, Christ, Lord God Almighty, you are all I need. You're all I need. I don't need that promotion. 
I don't need to move to a bigger house. I don't need to make a fortune. I don't need to become famous. I don't need to get married. I don't need to have children. I don't need, I don't need. There are very few things you need, you know. People say sex is a need. When I do my counseling with couples, sex is not a need. Nobody died because they didn't have sex. (laughs) Right? Breathing is a need. Right? Eating is a need. There are a few things that are need. So when we're, we're saying, Jesus, you're all I need, that's what we, we truly mean. That is that in my heart or have I drifted? Listen, I didn't get saved till late in, in, in life. I was in social services and we were crazy. We were nuts, man. We used to go out and it was, it was debauchery. I mean, it really was. It was a crazy life for 10 years of my life. I lived a completely depraved lifestyle together with a whole bunch of guys and gals. And there was one born-again Christian in my office who changed my life. He didn't lead me to Christ, but he absolutely stopped me in my tracks. We were, it was Friday night. Everybody in the office is going out to town, you know. We're going clubbing and everything that goes with that. And his name was David Jones, and David was there. And I was going, and I, he's born again, and I'm not. I'm very not. So I mocked him. You see, I mocked him. I turned and said, hi, Dave. We're going into town, buddy, <laughs> knowing that he couldn't respond. And I turned, and I just looked back and said, David, I bet you want to come. Bet you want to come with us. Well, I didn't expect the answer. Oh, he shut my mouth well and good. You know what he said? No. But it wasn't what he said. It was the way he said it. He didn't want to go. I couldn't believe that. I never really recovered from that. He, here he, I don't know, what was he, about 30 years old? He's a 30-year-old guy. And you'd rather go home than go in ABCD. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I never recovered from it because I knew he was content. And I realized that actually my pursuit was out of not being content. And that night was not quite the same for me. It's another night in town, but actually I was very curious because I knew him. I worked with him. What have you got? What is that that seems to take the place of everything else? He's a normal guy. And I thank God for that moment because it did. I'm not exaggerating. It did it did. I didn't get saved at that moment, but I never recovered from that moment. For the first, listen to me, for the first time, second time, my dad, but for the first time as an adult, I met someone who was content with Christ. He didn't actually want anything. He didn't need anything. And I'd never quite encountered that before. And I wanted it. Because whatever it was, it was better than what I was doing. You, are you with me? I, I wanted to pursue that, and it wasn't long. I did get saved in the same office, praise the Lord, with a Jewish doctor who came. The fact is, as Christians, we most definitely should be the most content people on earth. But the reality is, often that's not the case. And the reality is, if I go to your next door neighbor, they may be more content than you. <laughs> right? 
you could have lost family members who are more content. Now, there's good reasons and bad reasons, you know. One of the bad reasons for Christians not being content is the world is not enough. They always want, 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 want. That's what they want. They want, 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 want. All day long, born-again believers who have Christ yet get overwhelmed with wanting, wanting, wanting everything and anything. And it consumes people. This is a true story. There's a book written about it. The book is called The Lord is My Shepherd. This shepherd comes down out of his hills and goes to a church. And when he's in the church, the pastor that day just happens to be preaching on the 23rd Psalm. And the pastor says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's right, he'll give you everything you need. He'll give you everything you want. And the shepherd sits and thinks, <coughs> Pastor's not a shepherd. <laughs> And then he goes on and he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And the pastor interpreted that, that you'll have more than you need. You'll have everything you want. And at the end of the sermon, the shepherd goes up to the pastor and says, excuse me, so you're not a shepherd then, because you've got that wrong. This is, this, David is a shepherd and he's talking about sheep. You don't understand sheep. Do you know what sheep do? They want. Sheep want grass. That's all they want. They want and want and want and want and want. And what David is saying is, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not going to be like the world. I'm not going to be like them. And by the way, Pastor, when you said he makes me lie down in green pastures, that's not talking about abundance. That's talking about a a miraculous transformation. Because the one thing about sheep, the shepherd said, Sheep will never lie down in green grass. They will eat it until they blow up. (laughs) They will munch and munch and munch and munch and munch their way through that green grass. And when David says, you make me to lie down in green grass, what he's saying is, the world never stop wanting. But those who have Christ, they're not the same. The world see all the things around them and they want it. He makes me lie down in green grass. Even when I see the wealth of the nations, it doesn't affect me. I don't hunger after it. I don't run after it. I don't pursue it. For the Lord himself is my shepherd. Amen. Amen. Prosperity, you see. Prosperity preaching. I've got no problem with prosperity. Don't get me wrong. But everything can be mishandled. Everything can be abused. Today, I want God to be my shepherd, my guide, My all in all. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. When people hear about being content, they think of it almost like resignation. Like there's no drive. That's not right. That's not contentment from a biblical perspective. Biblical contentment still has thrust, still has drive, still establishes the kingdom on the earth. Amen. Amen. So, just be cautious. Don't be like the world, but be ambitious for the things of God. And learn to discern a holy discontentment, a holy dissatisfaction. I've had it many times. Uh, I was walking down a street in Dublin, and I walked past a shop. I didn't have anything to do with the shop. And God told me, take the lease on this premises. And there was a sign there. I thought, okay, uh, sure. I was leaving the country, and I had three team members there. And I said, would you just ring that company there and get the lease? I came back, and they said, sorry, it's not available. It's not available. We rang the guy. It's not, it's not on the market. They're going to take the sign, whatever. It's not right. 
And my gut just went holy dissatisfaction. I'm not content. That's good. Because God had spoken to me. I'm not just going to let that go to rest. And I rang the guy. said, yeah, it's not available. So I said to the bloke on the phone, um, could I, with all due respect, can I speak to your manager? And he's offended. What do you mean speak to my I want to, I need to, it's not available. Could I just speak to your manager? Okay. And I spoke to the manager. said, why did he tell you it's not available? Of course it's available. And I, I, I never forgot that because it happened again in a different way when we took our building in Dublin, which is still there today. Destiny Church have it. But the same holy dissatisfaction when I know that something's to be achieved. Are you with me? So don't hear what I'm not saying. Learn to be content with Christ, but don't make, make that like a resignation. from. No, 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 no. No, not at all. We remain with our aggression, but that aggression is tempered. Another bad thing about uh, motives and discontentment is many people, without thinking about it, it's subliminal, it's at the back of their minds, but all that they do, everything they pursue in life, is to get money. It's all about money. Even their worship. It's about money. And even their lives, people will sanctify their lives because they see that as a route to blessing. They hijack the church as a means to get rich. You with me? Oh, yes, they do. When I first met Rick, you know, I didn't like him. But I've grown to like him very much. He's grown in my heart. I'll tell you this story. We were traveling and... It was years ago, 17, 18 years ago. We were traveling in the States and we were in a, just happened to be driving past that later on that day, a very, very famous church. And he checked out and he said, oh, this is service, you know, we can go. I said, yeah, I'd love to go. So we end up in there and I've heard about this place many times. And we sneak in and we literally hide at the back because people will know him and we'll be pulled down. So we hid up at the back behind pillars And we listened, and the worship and everything. I thought it was just sensational. I thought it was fantastic. And we get outside, and we sit in the car, and I go, Whoa, that was really good. (laughs) He's not happy. He's not happy. I was quite shocked at that. I said, what's what's wrong with you? That that was great. That was really good. And it was a real life moment for me. It was a teaching moment. Great experience. Because he turned and he said, Mike, You're going to have to learn to discern why people worship and what they're there for. If your child comes home and says, Daddy, I love you. You're the best dad. I couldn't have wished for a better dad than you. Did I tell you I love you? Oh, yeah, I did, didn't I? Could I have 20 pounds of that? You know what I'm saying. (laughs) And that child will clean his room. Be very well behaved, but all the time, the motive is not actually love for the dad. The motive is get, because the child is not content. And particularly in the last days, as you see in multiple places, Christians get hijacked by discontentment, and they use praising God, worshipping God. Now, as a father, as a mother, when your child talks to you like that, you see straight through it, don't you? And you're not impressed with them, are you? You want them to grow out of that. 
You want them to move past that, and you may even at an appropriate time challenge them on that. Well, how do you think God feels whose son died on a cross then, when that's not enough? I want something else. I want things as well. I want this as well. I want that as well. Look at 1 Timothy. I'll show you this. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. One Timothy chapter six verse three. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and look, look, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Right? Are you with me? Thinking that godliness, Paul's point is there are many in our churches, in these churches and in our churches today, who believe that godliness is a means for them to get rich. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So it's not slighting godliness, of course, but it's saying godliness with contentment is great, great gain. That is so difficult to find, though. We had a ministry to the elderly on Thursday nights in Glasgow. And I tell you, I'm sad to say this, but it is true. There's a grace upon elderly people that you just can't seem to find much on younger people. There's a peace. There's a contentment. My dad had it. He had it in bucketfuls. He was so contented, so peaceful, so deep in God. And godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Not godliness with a secret ambition of the wrong sort. <laughs> okay, you with me? A secret hidden agenda that actually drives my sanctification and drives my prayer life, drives my everything, that has to be gotten out of our system. It has to be sanctified, purified, so that our motives are pure. Anyway, folks... If you're here in this room, you don't need anything. You live like a king. Who, me? (laughs) Yeah, you live, in fact, you live better than a king. All of us do. I was out in Glasgow one day and I wandered into the transport museum. It's at the end of my road. It was open and I walked in. Never been in there before. And in the museum, they had King Edward V's railway carriage. So like his lounge and you walk along a little bit and this is bedroom and this is office and as I looked into the carriage of the king I wouldn't even sit in there (laughs) because it was like a hundred years old or something and I I walked away from that carriage saying is that what a king lives in is that how they lived man I'm a king then I'm better than a king look at that are you with me suddenly realize, just because we get so modern, but if you take the whole span of history, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. Don't compare yourself with others. That's a fatal flaw. Don't listen to others like Eve listened to the devil. If only you had this. If only you were that. Everything would be fine. That's not true. It's, just not, it's, it's a deception. It's a lie. 
It was a lie that caused her downfall. It's a lie that's caused God's intervention multiple times. And I repeat, the last one just about to come. If you seek God for a word and he talks to you, that's important. But if you don't seek God for a word and he talks to you, it's more important. Right? In other words, this happened to me. I was walking down the road in Dublin on the riverbank. And from nowhere, I'm not seeking God. I'm just going to the church. And out of nowhere came a statement from heaven to me. And that statement was this. Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. So I rushed in and wrote it down. Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. What does that mean? Contentment is the starting place, not the goal. And I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it, about how, as a Christian, me, you, many people have a goal that one day, that rainbow, when I get a new job, I'm going to be content. But then they get the new job, and it's not that great. A single person wants to get married, and then I'll be happy. A married person thinks, if only I could get divorced. That's a joke. (laughs) Then they want to have kids. Then they want the kids to leave home. Then when the kids leave home, they want to retire. And I'll be content. Then when they retire, they want to be young again. And so this cycle goes around and round in circles. And human beings, honestly, forever deceived, forever deceived, like all our forefathers, deceived that there is something at the end of the rainbow, pursuing the wrong thing, is what's caused all of these previous falls and caused God's intervention. And I hope when he comes back, when evening comes, that I am found singing and that I am found in his presence and that he is enough for me. And I'm not like everybody else. And I don't mean resign, remember? I'm not saying that. Look at Ecclesiastes. The wisest person who ever lived wrote these words. And God used him as an example of the pursuit of everything the world has to offer. And he found that it was all meaningless and empty. I said, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. He's talking to himself. To find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and promises and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and had a harem as well as the delights of uh, as well the delights of man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me and all my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused Uh, my heart, no pleasure. And look at this next verse. My heart took delight in my labor. How brief though. Keep reading. For one moment, 
All of his life's work brought him pleasure for one moment, one hit, one high. You got the job. Yes. Now what? You with me? Look at it. My heart took delight in all my labor, but it was short-lived. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained in all my pursuit. Goodness me. Are you hearing it? You, be careful what you set your mind to. A good friend of mine is a merchant banker. I've shared this with you before. He's a very faithful friend in Ireland. And he worked for a Dutch merchant bank. He was with us for years. And he gave his life with those people. And, and then one day, you know, he walks in the office and they tell him he's fired. He didn't even know. He wasn't even told. I mean, how wicked. The guy's sitting in his desk. And a boy, that guy walks past the room and says, Oh, Henry, what are you doing in here? What are you going to do? be here 30 years, 28 years. Didn't, didn't they, uh, didn't they, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, sorry, they've discontinued you. And that, it, worse than this, the guy went away and came back and said, We need your office. Can you go? And he did go, and he came to me. Wakey, wakey. Time to wake up. Do you know, listen to me. Don't let the last thing that you learn about this life be what should have been the first. The last thing he learned was what he should have learned years ago. You have been told. You have read it. You have had prophecies. You have already been warned. And yet we still get on the mouse wheel. We still run after everything the pagans do. And we get burned in the same way. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, God takes him and uses him as an example of someone from whom nothing was withheld. Are you with me? So God takes Solomon. Do you know what? I'm going to show you what things are what the pursuit of... Because I have my next list up, please. Ray. Solomon pursued... One forward, please. Solomon pursued all these things. Science. And we get it in churches constantly. Especially in Glasgow. Many scientists. About one third of the church is in science. But I always say to them, please, no problem with studying science. No problem. You know, it becomes their passion. It becomes their drive. And I say, hallelujah, go ahead. Do well. Study hard. Be excellent in your field, but don't forget Christ. He pursued the arts. He pursued music and architecture. And if we're not careful, these very things can take His place. I'm going to become famous. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He said He, he collected great galleries. My God, I tell you this week, God is not far away. He's very near. I was sitting writing these notes. Next slide, please. And my friend sent me... It doesn't come out. It's actually a brilliant painting. <laughs> my friend has an art gallery in Glasgow. Um, it's a big gallery, three floors. And a few years back, uh, she's got all covered in paintings. And they're fantastic. There's a lot of great talent in Glasgow. 
But I walked in and there was something just so special on the wall. I said, what's, what's that? Sorry, gone. Sold. There was another one. It's gone as well. I said, well, get him to do a commission. He wouldn't do a commission. She said, the guy is just bone idle. What, with a talent like this? He doesn't do anything. He won't work. Don't invest in him. So, you know, a couple of years went by and I would say to her on a regular basis, has he done anything? No. Nothing. He won't do anything. He just doesn't like paint. He doesn't like it. He's a perfectionist. But when I saw, it's not this one, they were sold. Listen to this. I love, love art. I know nothing about it. I just appreciate it. I just like to see what people have done. I've got no skill in that area. So it really it delights me when I see the skill. So I'm writing these notes about Solomon and his art galleries. And this picture comes through on email. Ding, ding. Ha. Huh. And Francis said, you'll never guess who just walked in the shop. Daniel Fitzpatrick. And he's done two paintings. He obviously needs money. Walked in. He said, she said, I'm buying one. And I'll give you first refusal. I decided against it. <laughs> you with me? God's not far away, is he? God's not far away. He was right beside me. Right beside me. Because I love this guy. I think he's brilliant. But am I going to be distracted by it? Am I going to let it take my attention? Solomon tried all that. And in the end, he said it was folly. It was all stupid. Why did I do that? And the final command he gives is, serve the Lord, fear the Lord and serve him all the days of your life. So let's not repeat the mistakes of history. On another occasion, I had a lovely lady in the church, very trustworthy friend of my wife's actually, called Tina Manning. And she said, can I make a banner? Of course you can make a banner. And it took her forever. She constructed this banner in an old-fashioned way. And the day came when I turned up. She had informed me, I've got the banner finished. Can we put it on the platform? She's not looking for attention. It's not in her nature. She was looking to glorify God. That's her heart. So I said, yes, no problem. You can put it on the platform. And she put it up there. On that day, on that morning, I keep all my messages. I preach this message here. And in my notes, I had written this, about 1997. I had written this, my soul finds rest in God alone. Guess what was on the banner? (laughs) My soul finds rest in God alone. And there was that lady sitting at home, very sweet, sanctified lady, working away, producing her little thing to glorify God. And that day, I never forgot it. Out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Are you going to find contentment in money? Will money make you happy, Brian? Yes, it will. If I gave you a million pounds, you'd be delighted. (laughs) Yes, you would. Yes, you would. You'd be over the moon. (laughs) But it doesn't last. That's the problem. Right? It doesn't last. It's a deception. Look, look at what Solomon said. I was delighted with what happened, but in the end it has a bitter sting in the tail. Amen? Amen. Is your promotion, is your job going to make you happy? No. And you've got to get that, get that scripture into your heart and into your head. My soul will find rest in God alone. 
Next slide, or I think it's two slides forward, please, Ray. These are, just remember this list if you remember nothing else from today. Adam and Eve made the same mistake of not being content with God, and it led to us all getting lost, right? The whole world fell because of it. In fact, it wasn't just Adam and Eve. Let me show you this here. Turn to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 5. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 5. Eve wasn't, God wasn't enough for Eve. God wasn't enough for the Babylonians. And God is, Jesus is not enough for the apostles. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are, you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. So Jesus is not enough. Here you have Jesus walking with his disciples, his apostles, and here they are incredibly, incredibly saying, if only we had something more. If only the Father was here, then everything would be okay. So it's not just Eve, it's us, it's the apostles, it's those who know Christ, those who are born again, that Christ is not enough. May the Lord forgive us for that. May today... He become my all in all. Many a man will look at his wife and say, you're not enough. I need something more. Many a woman will look at her husband and say, you're not enough. And it leads to trouble. It leads to strife. And marriage breakdowns. Discontentment. It's a seed that the devil sows today and has always sown. Let me finish with this last scripture. The last one. Philippians chapter 3. 4, sorry. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul. One of the real stalwarts of scripture, right? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. Stephen, play. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The abandonment of that principle has caused so much in history. It caused the flood, 